cross, the power of your blood. And today as we come together and as we read your word and as we are able to see the result of what you have done for us, your death and your resurrection, that is the only way we can be saved. Lord, I pray you'd open our eyes, open our minds, help us to understand what your word would have for us this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we have the opportunity to finish up the book of Mark, uh, and uh, that's what we're going to do. Uh, we've, we've pretty much completed the whole series as we've gone through the book of Mark. We've seen the life of Jesus Christ, his, the promise that we've received, and now we see him living, and we see him dying, and we see him risen again. We've already been through those things as we've looked at the book of Mark in just a minute, I'll do some review for those of you who maybe have missed all or part of the series. Um, uh, but we are getting now to the very end, and the next week, uh, Steve is going to come, and he's going to share a conclusion message uh, based on everything we've seen through the book of Mark. And so we'll look forward to that next week. But for today, we are going to be in chapter 16 of the book of Mark, and we're going to be starting in verse 9. Uh, before we read that... Um, First of all, um, there may be some of you, and this is going to sound strange to some, there may be some of you today that in your Bibles, depending on your translation and, and when you bought the Bible, uh, that verses 9 through 20 actually might not be there. Um, some of you might have Bibles like that. If that's the case, um, get out your phone and use that as your Bible, whatever you need to do. Um, I will explain all that in a minute. It is a passage of Scripture in which there has been a lot of debate about whether it should actually be included in what we have today in our Bible. Uh, but we'll talk about all that in a minute. Um, so, don't be confused if you go to find verse 9. Most of you will. Most of you will have brackets around verses 9 through 20, and it'll say the earliest manuscripts don't have this, based something like that. Uh, and we will talk all about that. Uh, last week, uh, we ended, and if you remember where we ended in verse 8... Uh, Jesus had just been resurrected, the, the ladies, the women had come to the tomb, they saw that it was empty, uh, a man who was there, uh, an angel who was there, tells them, look, uh, you need to, he's not here, he is risen. And so Jesus has died on the cross, he's given his life, he's been buried, we looked at that, he was buried, he was really dead, this wasn't just a figment of imagination, he was truly dead, and then he rose again, uh, he reversed death itself. And as we ended in verse 8, we see that as the women find this, uh, they're told that he has risen. They are told them to go to Galilee and you will see him just as he said. Remember, Jesus said that he would rise again. Nobody quite understood what he meant. They still don't. Uh, but yet the women now see and they've heard that he's been risen. And they run away. And what we're told in verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's where we ended. Uh, so the thing is, these women run away, and we looked at the fact that this isn't a fear of like physical harm. The fear or the astonishment that they're feeling is that they are in such awe and shock about what is happening that they can't even speak. They are, they are shocked to the point of being speechless. So they are in shock. They have seen that Jesus had been risen again. A miracle has occurred. It couldn't have happened any other way. The stone could not have been rolled away by anyone other than God himself. And they are so astonished and so afraid, so trembling, so not understanding what's going on that they're speechless. 
and they run away. And actually, if you look at the rest of Scripture, you'll see they run away, yes, but they end up going to find the disciples. They tell the disciples uh, about the fact that Jesus has risen again, and uh, they don't believe them right away, which we'll get to today. So this is, where mo- this is where some scholars believe that the book ended originally when it was first written. When Mark wrote these words, it ended in verse 8. That leaves you with wondering a little bit, right? For us, we kind of know more because we've read the other gospel accounts and we've seen the other, uh, the other men who have written about Jesus and, and who he was. We know how things end. But to end here seems very strange. It seems very strange that just all of the, they run away and that's it. And Mark comes to a conclusion. It kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, I've used movies as an illustration before, but if you've watched a true, like based on a true story movie, like you watched it based on a true story movie, you sit through the movie, you watch it, and you're thinking, wow, this is incredible, this stuff really happened. And you know, of course, sometimes it's embellished a little bit, but you understand as you watch the movie, you're like, this is incredible, all this really happened. And then they get to the end of the movie, and almost all uh, true stories, if, if they've done a good job, uh, you get to the end and, and something happens, um, and at the end of the movie, it's a grand climax of something that has happened, and it comes to the end, but a lot of times they don't go all the way to the end of that person or that situation. They don't go all the way to the end of that person's life or go to the end of the entire situation. A classic movie of this, one of my favorite movies of all time, is the, is the, is the movie Miracle about uh, the 1980 Olympic hockey team. And if you watch that movie, they don't even show uh, the final game in which they actually win the gold medal. They end their movie with the, with the, when they played uh, the Russians, when they pr- played the Soviet Union and they won. And, and that was the big game because that was the game they were supposed to not be able to win. But then the movie doesn't even show what happens in the final game to win the gold. You would think that the story would end with that, but they didn't. Now, however, at the end, what happens? You have these words that show up on the screen, right? And they show up on the screen and they tell you everything that you need to know about what happened after these events. And and the the words come up and they say the United States uh, did defeat, I think it was Czechoslovakia, I believe, I don't remember for sure, for to win the gold medal. So they finished off the story with that caption. But just imagine watching a movie like that not having that caption. And being left with, okay, so they won the qualifying game, but what happened? Did they get the gold? Did they not get the gold? Did they end up with only the silver? What's the story? How does the story end? And maybe there's another other movies where you can think about that, where those captions at the end tell us so much more about what happens after the main event. After the main thing that the movie is focused on, what happens after? And those things help us to understand not only what happens after, but also understand all the results of all the things we've already seen. And I believe the same thing is happening here in Mark. From 9 through 20, we're going to look at verses in which it's almost like an after-the-fact caption. Like, this is the true story of Jesus. We've talked all about who Jesus is and what he's done, and he rose again and people run away. Okay, then what? And so in verses 9 through 20, we are able to see the then what. What happens after Jesus rises again and the women run away from the tomb. All right, and so um, we're, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about why these verses are here, how they got there, and all those different things. But before we get there, let's do a little bit of review for those of you who haven't been with us each week. I'm not going to go through every single sermon, but here's in general what we've seen so far through the book of Mark. I will go through these very quickly. Throughout the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus is the suffering servant king. 
who is truly God and truly man. The suffering servant king. Remember, the king that would rule the world, that has authority, and yet would exert that authority through suffering and through serving us, humans. And we see that Jesus suffered not only in the way, in through his ministry and through rejection, but we also see him serving and then finally suffering on the cross to give his life for us. Jesus along the way was opposed and rejected by many Jewish leaders. We've seen that throughout the book. Jesus' mission was to suffer and die for all people. Jesus has been telling that from really the very beginning of his ministry, that his, the end of his mission was not to overthrow Rome, was not to make a new nation of Israel, but what Jesus' goal and his mission was is to die and to rise again, to die and to suffer for sin and then to rise again. And then we saw some teaching that Jesus showed us that if Jesus is here to serve and to sacrifice and to suffer, then following Jesus means self-sacrifice. That sometimes following Jesus means that we have to give up ourselves for the sake of him. And that we have to give up all the things that we think are so important. Not in a physical way that we would actually sacrifice ourselves physically, but this is a way of putting everything else that we care about behind what Jesus wants. Then we've seen that Jesus shows and and has taught his identity to his followers all throughout the book. There's no question of who he is. He is the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would save the world from their sins. But even with this being true, he is betrayed and is arrested. We see he's betrayed by Judas, one of his closest friends. He's betrayed by others as they turn and walk away. And Jesus faces betrayal, another way of suffering. After he's betrayed and he is arrested, we then see Jesus is tried. He's brought to trial. He is tried and sentenced to death. The perfect God who came as a man, the perfect one, the one who would take the penalty for all sin because he was perfect, an innocent one was indeed tried and sentenced to death. Someone who was innocent would be killed. And that brings us to Jesus' crucifixion. We've seen that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was crucified, and through being crucified on the cross, it brought reconciliation to the world. He was humiliated uh, in the fact that uh, he had to take sin on his body. He was judged by God himself. He was facing judgment for sin, for you and for me. He died on the cross to shed his blood uh, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And by being forgiven, we can be reconciled. And we were once enemies of God, but through Jesus, now we have access to him and we can have a real relationship with him again. And finally, then last week, we saw that Jesus' resurrection brings hope and it brings new life. That the death was great, it gave us, Jesus paid for our sin by dying and that is so vitally important to understanding the gospel that he died for us so that we don't have to be separated from God forever in hell but instead can have a relationship with him. Jesus did that through his death but through his resurrection it's the other part of the gospel. It shows us that Jesus had power over death, power over sin and he can give you hope and he can give you new life. It's not just about being forgiven of what's in the past, but it's also about living for Christ going forward. And Jesus, through his resurrection, brings us true hope. In the times we don't know where to find hope, we can find it in Jesus, because he defeated sin and death, and he can defeat anything in our lives as well. And we have new life because of what he's done for us, his sacrifice for us. It is our calling to live for him, which is a new way of living. So that is, in a nutshell, what we've seen in all 16 chapters of the book of Mark. 
And now we find ourselves, as I said, in verse 9. So let's just read the passage. I'm going to make some comments about it to start, and then we'll go in to see what we have to read, or have to see here. So verse 9 of chapter 16 says this. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at a table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. As I read this passage, you might have had some questions. I don't have any snakes today. Um, thought about it. Thought about getting a rubber snake. I'm not going to touch a real snake. I don't have poison that I'm going to drink. All right, so I know there's some weird things in there. We're going to get to that. Uh, but let's just start by just talking about this passage in general. As I said, many of you will have uh, parentheses in your Bible that will say that this passage wasn't in the earliest manuscripts that have been found. Indeed, that is true. If you look into history and you look at the manuscripts of the Bible that we have found, which, by the way, is the most wonderfully preserved uh, 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 literary work in all of history. Like, we have, within a, hundred, within a few hundred years of its original writing, we have copies that are everywhere. Uh, other ancient manuscripts, they are usually, it's, sometimes it's up to a thousand years that we find a manuscript before of what it was actually written. We have no idea if it's anywhere close to the original. We know that based on all the, all the copies of the Bible that we found throughout the world and that we've dated to find and that they are within a hundred or two hundred years of original writing, it is actually amazing. There is, there is so much that we can go on that, and we could talk about that all day. But that being said, we have found a lot of different manuscripts, and there, are, there is some disagreement. Um, the manuscript that was used to write the King James Version, which some of you might have, um, was, is from the Texas Receptus, which is a, a manuscript that was found. It's an old manuscript, and it was, there was a lot of them found. There was a, a good majority of manuscripts that were found, and that manuscript is what was used for the King James back in 1611 when they first translated the Bible into English. All right, and so when that happened, that was what was used. And these verses were in that manuscript. And so they got put in Bibles, and nobody really thought about it because that was what was there. Um, and so that's where it started, but then after the Texas Receptus, we actually found a few other manuscripts that weren't as numerous, but have been proven to be much older. So much older in the sense closer to original writing. And so now we have like uh, New American Standard Bible, we have ESV, which is what I preach from. Uh, we have different translations now that use those manuscripts that are older and are, are thought to be more reliable because of their age. So there's this classic back and forth of, with scholars of which is more important, more manuscripts or older manuscripts. And I'm not going to tell you today that there is a definite answer to that. I do prefer going older. Some people would prefer going with more. 
I will say that the difference between the two are so minute and they don't change much. But in that understanding, these verses come up because in the earliest manuscripts, these verses 9 through 20 don't exist. Uh, they're not in the manuscripts that we find. And so they show up later. And then also to make things even more con- confusing and uh, is that there, when we look at the church fathers, so those guys who came after Jesus, after the disciples, that were teaching the new church that had started, you know, so the, the disciples of the disciples, uh, they, they are teaching, and it's interesting, because we can find there's several of them that used this passage, and several of them, several, several of them who never used it, and actually didn't, and would made comments about the fact that they didn't even know about it. So there's two branches, so we've got now even more controversy, which is what we're talking about, by the way, in this introduction. This is the controversy over the passage. So now there's this controversy of, should this be in our Bibles today, the ones that we have today, if they weren't in the earliest manuscripts, then should they be here today? Should we read them today? And this is where there becomes a lot of controversy, because there are some people, I studied this this week, uh, and I found both on both sides. John MacArthur preaches on this passage, and he says, you shouldn't talk about it too much, because it shouldn't be there. Other people I've read that have said, you know what, Uh, even though it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, it was accepted by the early church. And when the early church accepted it and brought it into canon, it should be considered in the Bible. And so you have two different sides of this debate. So where does that leave us? Right, so this is a fun passage. This is such a fun sermon. Um, Where does this leave us? I don't want to confuse anybody to say that somehow that God's word is not perfect and complete because it is. We have one of the most reliable texts of any book anywhere in the world, and we can trust it. Now, here's what I want to say. Since there is a chance that 9 through 20 is not in the original manuscript, we need to read this passage with caution. And yes, if you figured this out, I'm taking the middle ground. Um, We need to read this passage with caution. I think it's important to read it because the early church has recognized this. I believe that there are early church fathers and many who have used this passage and have quoted from this passage. And so I think we should look at it. I think as we look at this, we're going to see that there's nothing untruthful in here or anything that's going to change our doctrine. Uh, But when we read this passage, as when we read any passage, we need to look at the other parts of Scripture that would back up and confirm what we're reading here. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage and we're going to look at other areas of scripture that talk about the same thing. And you're going to see that everything in here can be seen as true and it is true whether or not it was originally part of the manuscript or not. And we're going to look through the whole of scripture, take the context, and we're going to learn some things about what happens after Jesus' resurrection. All right? And it is obvious, by the way, I just want to put this out there too, I didn't... If you look at these verses, the subject changes, the, the style of writing changes. They go from talking about women to talking about Jesus, just abruptly. Uh, there's a difference in style. It doesn't look like Mark. It doesn't sound like Mark. There's a good chance then, uh, with all that being said, that these verses were not written by Mark, which does support the idea that maybe they were added later in a later manuscript. It also could just mean a lot of different reasons that somebody else finished. The same thing happened in Deuteronomy, by the way. Moses dies after writing Deuteronomy, and there's a whole chapter uh, in which is written about Moses after he's dead. Somebody else had to write that, and it's still very much part of the Bible. And so we don't know exactly, but we do know there's something different about this passage, and that's why we read it with caution. And so 
The controversy over the passage is well seen. The conclusion of how to read this passage is, read it with caution. Don't use one of these verses and isolate it as this is the verse and we're going to forget about the rest of the Bible. What do I mean by this? All right, handling serpents, drinking deadly poison. You guys know there are churches that call themselves churches, I'll put it that way, that their pastors, every, every, every time they preach, are handling poisonous snakes. Nuts, right? I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna even come close to, okay, so, but they do it because they take this one verse and they say, I should be able to handle snakes, so I'm gonna handle snakes. They don't take into consideration the verses that say, don't test the Lord your God. Uh, you know, if, if you're handling a poisonous snake, you're testing God. You're saying, let it bite me and see what happens. I'm gonna prove that I have enough faith that I can be bitten by a snake. Uh, or drinking poison, the same idea. Uh, it, just because that verse is there, we're going to talk about why it would even be there, but just because it's there, we don't isolate it and say, all right, let's start next week. Everybody, when you come in, uh, when we do communion, instead of the grape juice, we're going to put poison in your cup. And we're going to see who's really saved. Uh, we're not going to do that. Okay, that, that is testing God. That is taking a verse out of context. All right, so I say all that to say we need to read this with, with, uh, with caution. So I spent too much time talking about that. I want to get to the meat of what we see here, and I want to compare it with other scripture. We're going to go kind of quickly. I'm going to give you some references. I'm going to ask you to look those up on your own time. We don't have time to look at every reference that will parallel what we're seeing today. But as we start from verses 9 through 14, we see the correction of Jesus. The correction of Jesus. Jesus will correct his disciples and you say, well, that's not exactly where it started. We see that he, he appeared to Mary. And, and yes, we see that. We see actually in Matthew 28 that Mary Magdalene tells the disciples of Jesus' resurrection. They don't believe it. Matthew 28 and John 20. Two other, gospel, uh, two other gospels, different men writing from a different perspective, same story of Jesus. As they write it, they include this part. They say, yes, indeed, Mary Magdalene tells the disciples of Jesus' resurrection. And what we're told in Mark and what we're told in other places is, indeed, the disciples did not believe it. We actually see a couple of disciples running to the tomb. Sometimes we isolate that, that, that passage and we think, oh, the disciples believed so much that they ran to the tomb. The truth of the matter is, is a few of those disciples ran to the tomb because they wanted to see if it was actually true that Jesus wasn't there. Because they were concerned what would have happened to Jesus' body. They didn't quite get it. And so we see that this starts with Mary Magdalene telling them, and they don't believe him. They don't believe these women. They say they must be crazy. They must be seeing things. They don't, Jesus had already told them that he's going to rise again, and they don't believe it. It's crazy. Then we're told uh, in the next passage, uh, in the next part of this passage, in verse 12, it says, After these things he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Uh, this is, these are the disciples that are walking on the road to Emmaus. You may have heard of these guys. Two traveling disciples tell others of Jesus' resurrection. So uh, the road to Emmaus, by the way, is found in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. Another passage that shows us that what is being said here in Mark is indeed true. That there are two disciples, they're walking on a road to the countryside, to the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to them, he's walking beside them, and he's talking to them. And they don't recognize him at first. And then he starts explaining to them from the beginning of Scripture who the Messiah is and shows himself to be the Messiah. And then at the end, they finally realize, wait a minute, this was Jesus. Jesus, in his resurrected form, was here with us, and we didn't even know it. And so then they run to the disciples that are hiding in an upper room, and they run to them and they say, I've seen Jesus, we've seen Jesus. And what we're told in Mark and even in Luke, we're told that they don't 
believe it. They're just, they discuss it, they debate it, they debate it because they don't believe it. They still don't believe that Jesus is risen. And then we find here, um, after this, in verse 14, afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And so, we also see this very similar thing happen back in Luke 24, after the, road to, after the disciples of the road to Emmaus. Jesus comes and talks to the disciples and said, why are you doubting? Why aren't you believing? Why didn't you believe me? He shows them his side and his, the scars in his hands and his feet, and he shows them the scar in his side that was caused by the spear, and he proves himself to them. He has to go to them and have them see him to believe that he truly rose again. You see, he'd been preaching to them throughout the time he'd been with them, I'm going to die but I'm going to rise again. And they still wouldn't believe it until finally Jesus comes and says, look, it's true. And so we're told in Mark, and the assumption is also made in Luke 24, that Jesus is disappointed in the fact that they have not believed the people who have witnessed. So Jesus appears to the the disciples and rebukes them for not believing. He says, why would you not have believed? And now he's there for them, and they finally do believe. They finally believe that Jesus not only died for them now, but now has risen again. And Jesus is proving himself. Actually, in Luke 24, he does the same thing that he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He explains to the disciples who he is, what must have happened. He he explains everything to them, and they finally get it. It took for him to reappear to them after being resurrected to finally get it. And so we see the first part of what happens after Jesus resurrects is Jesus has to go right into correction mode. He has to go and find his disciples and say, why haven't you believed? And Jesus is disappointed in that. And Jesus is going to use them anyway, right? So he, and he shows himself to them. You know, one of the classic ones is Doubting Thomas. He needs to see it. He needs to feel it. He needs to know. They didn't believe until then. And so after Jesus resurrects, he starts by correcting his disciples, by rebuking them, by telling them that you need to believe Which then leads us into the next part of what he says in verses 14 through 18. We already read verse 14, but that's going to be part of the second point as well. Not only did Jesus have have to correct. So the correction of Jesus was first, but then the instruction of Jesus. The instruction of Jesus happens starting in verse 14 as well. And he rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. We see the first thing that Jesus tells his disciples is that the disciples are to believe the gospel. The disciples are to believe the gospel, the gospel in whole, which is that Jesus not only came to save the world through his death, but also through his resurrection. And he tells them that they need to believe this, and he rebukes them for not believing. And so the disciples are told that they need to believe. Luke 24, again, going back, uh, that's exactly what we just talked about. Jesus explains to them who he is again. Jesus explains why what has happened has happened. And in Luke 24, he tells them all these things so that they would truly believe. And so we see that the disciples are being called now to believe the gospel, to believe the gospel. In fact, then he goes on and he says, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Once again, Jesus is focusing on faith, on believing. And he says, you need to believe. And later he's going to say that you need to preach for other people to believe. But before we get there, you need to believe. Now, I'm going to take a little rabbit trail here because it's important that we must. Um, 
is, as we talk about this idea of believe, you know, later on in verse 16, we'll get back to verse uh, 15, don't worry about that, we'll get back there, but uh, in verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. What is the message then that the disciples are about to share uh, if they are to believe? The point of all this passage, you could get confused here, right? Because it says you need to believe and be baptized. It looks like there's two things that you have to do to be saved. You have to believe and then you have to be baptized. Uh, That's not the message that the disciples are going to have to preach. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That verse, as we compare this with the rest of Scripture, there's an understanding here. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not believe and be baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, and 10, we looked at last week. If you can confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus, or confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Jesus has risen again, then God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's what Romans 10, 9, and 10 says. It doesn't say that you need to uh, confess, that you need to believe, and you need to be baptized. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, many of you know this, for by grace we have been saved, through faith, and not, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. We believe through faith, and that's how we receive salvation. So as we come to Mark and it says those who believe and are baptized, we need to be very careful that this is not, baptism is a thing that we do, but it's not the thing that saves us. What saves us is Jesus. What saves us is his death and resurrection. In fact, if you want to turn with me this morning, I know we've been just hitting on things, but I want to go to, this is an important one. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians uh, and we're going to look at chapter 1, verse 17 to start with. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. And then we're going to move over to 15. But 1 Corinthians 1, 17. This is important here. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, For Christ did not send me, this is Paul, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says here that his, his commission by Christ is to preach the gospel, not to baptize. Now, keep that in mind as we turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8, if you'll read along with me, or follow along if you don't have it in front of you. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. And he appeared more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
What is the gospel that Paul preaches? Well, let's go back and see right here. Remember, back in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, God, Jesus didn't commission me to baptize. He commissioned me to preach the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, he says it very clearly here in verse 3, uh, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. That is the gospel. That is what saves us. And so now we find ourselves in Mark talking about baptism. And notice here, even in this verse, in verse 16, it says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But then it says, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's interesting that baptized isn't used again here. It doesn't say, but whoever does not believe and is not bat- or is not baptized will be condemned. No, it talks about belief. Belief is the important thing. So why is baptism even mentioned? So I'm not going to lie to you, you go throughout scripture, you're going to see a lot of times when the gospel is preached and when people come to know Jesus, that they get baptized. Uh, and in today's world, we don't quite get it because we're not in that time when baptism was the way that you declared that you were giving, that you were giving up your old way of life and starting a new one. That's what you did back then. That's how you showed it. It was like you're going to get baptized because it shows that you're living a new life for Jesus. And so when people came to Jesus in the New Testament, throughout the book of Acts, you'll see it. When people came to Jesus in the New Testament, what they did was they believed, and they believed so much that they wanted to right then start their new life with Jesus, and and they would be baptized. They would be brought under the water that would be a symbol of Jesus' death, and brought up again a symbol of Jesus' resurrection, that they are being, that their old way of living is going to die. They're not going to live for sin in themselves anymore, but they're going to live for Jesus. And so it was vitally important for the early church that when they got saved, they got baptized. It really was, um, it just happened. It was, they just went together. It, there wasn't a question of, oh, you got saved, okay, you can wait a few years and then you can figure it out and then you can get baptized. Which is kind of where we're at today. And there's lots of reasons why we, uh, we have people wait on baptism. We want to make sure that they truly understand salvation I think sometimes we've gone maybe too far that way. I think sometimes we need to be quicker to baptize and not be so slow. Uh, But what is the truth here is very obvious. That although baptism is not a condition of salvation, it is an expectation. It's not a condition of salvation. In other words, you can be saved through believing in Jesus, in his death and his resurrection. Much like the thief on the cross, he was never baptized, but Jesus said he'd be with him in paradise. There are other examples you would find in Scripture. But, that being said, even though baptism is not a condition of salvation, it is an expectation. And I use this opportunity to say for anyone here, if you have not been baptized, and I mean not just sprinkled as a baby, that, that, that's being sprinkled, I mean being baptized, being immersed underwater, representing that you are dying to your old self and living to your new life in Christ, if you have not been baptized, you need to do that. And I'm not even saying the words you should do that. You need to do that. You, it's the expectation. It's following Jesus' command. It's following the command of Scripture that once you're saved, you get baptized. That's what you do. You know those commercials that are, oh, what is that commercial? Uh, where it goes through and it says, if you're this type of person, you're going to do this because that's just what you do. Right? That's the understanding. I don't remember what the product is, so they didn't do a very good job. But the understanding there is um, that this is just what you do. Oh, it's Geico, I remember. See, uh, guy, you know, saving 15% is what you do if you're a Geico customer, just like if you're uh, a so-and-so, this is what you do. Well, here's the thing. If you're a Christian, baptism is what you do. It should follow. And if you haven't been baptized, you really need to do that. 
So that was a long time talking about baptism, but we had to talk about that here. So you compare this verse to the rest of Scripture, and you see that baptism, although not a condition, it is an expectation. So let's move on. Not only the disciples to believe the gospel, uh, they are to proclaim the gospel. The disciples are to proclaim the gospel. Here in chapter 16, verse 15, many of you have probably uh, memorized this at one point, and he said to them, go into the whole world and preach the gospel to the whole of creation. That's what he says in verse 15. Now, this is also echoed in Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1, right? We see in those passages that Jesus does indeed tell his disciples in in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that's said there in Acts 1, we're told that they are going to be witnesses to the world around them. So we see that this indeed is true. So even if this was added afterwards, it's somebody that is using the other scriptures to show what happened after Jesus' resurrection. So after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples are called to believe the gospel, and they're called to proclaim the gospel. And so this is important, because all of this book that we've been reading, it's not for us to read and to understand and then to hoard for ourselves. That is selfish, it's not loving, it's not what we're called to do. And Jesus, before he leaves, one of his final instructions is very simple. It's to spread this, to share this, to get it out there. Don't hoard it for yourselves, but go and share this with the world around us. And that's what Jesus calls them to do, to preach or to proclaim the gospel. If your translation says preach, that is a good word, but a better word is proclaim. Because you're not all preachers in the sense that we like to think about it, right? Everybody thinks a preacher is somebody who stands up in front of a bunch of people and preaches. But you are all proclaimers. You all can live a life in which you proclaim Jesus and what he's done for you. You can all share the life with others that Jesus has given to you. I was just at a conference on Tuesday with Ron Hutchcraft. Some of you know him. Some of you went on that night to hear him speak. And one of the things he said was this, that to proclaim the gospel, people make it too complicated. Proclaim the gospel by sharing your hope story in your own situation and in your own sphere of influence. Just start there. Because Jesus says to proclaim the gospel everywhere you are. So if in your workplace, that is where God has put you. In your family, that is where God has put you. Maybe you're in a certain social club. That is where God has put you. Use that and share what God has done in your life. Share the salvation that you have received with others. It's that simple. That you have found new hope. You can give new hope to others. And so it's important as disciples, we proclaim God's gospel to the world. That Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus rose again so that they could be saved. That is what we preach. That's what we proclaim through the way we live. And it's the way we proclaim in the way we speak. Share our hope. Share our faith. And that is what we're expected to do as disciples of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the disciples are to confirm, to confirm the gospel. So they're to believe the gospel, they're to proclaim the gospel, now they are to confirm the gospel. To confirm the gospel. Now this gets a little, this is where we get into the little bit of a weird thing here when it talks about snakes, when it talks about poison, right? And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Alright, so how do we support this with other scripture? Well, we can look at the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts 
is very clear throughout that book when the early church starts that God does use some pretty miraculous things to get things started. People are healed, demons are cast out. Uh, there are things happening in the book of Acts that are nothing other than miraculous, that God is doing amazing things. And, and the thing about this is, as this passage is being written, it's about what happened after Jesus resurrected. And for God uh, to confirm the gospel, for the gospel to be confirmed that this indeed is true, God did some crazy, amazing things through the book of Acts. You know, when Peter stands up and he starts to preach on that very first, the very first gospel presentation, very first revival meeting, if you want to call it that, as he goes out onto the streets of Jerusalem and he starts preaching the gospel and everybody there starts hearing him preach in their own language. That cannot happen other than God himself doing it. So tongues were being spoken in the sense that it was a way of proclaiming the gospel in a way that everyone could understand. And so that happened through the book of Acts. We see things happen. People are healed. There are good, wonderful things that are happening that are confirming that Jesus has power over everything. We've seen it in Jesus' life, and now he's given that power to those who follow after him. Now we could have a whole sermon on sign gifts about tongues, prophecy. We could start getting into miracles, all of those things. We don't have time to discuss that. If you ever want to have a one-on-one conversation, we can do that. That's great. But I will say this. I believe that with all my heart that God is the, and we're going to see this in a minute, and so I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but God is the one who's doing these things. These are not things that people are willing themselves to do. The tongues, the, heal, the healing, the casting out demons, all of these things that happen in Acts, they were done by God himself. God was working through them to do these things. These are not things that we can manufacture ourselves. And I believe we have a world around us and a church around us that sometimes trying to, tries to manufacture these sign gifts, manufacture these things to somehow make things miraculous even when they might not be. I believe that God could use them still. I believe that he chooses not to at this point. I believe he used it to confirm his message at the beginning of the church. But now we have this. We have God's word. Everything in here we need for life. We don't need anything extra. And so that's what we have today. To the snakes and the deadly poison, we don't see a specific instance in scripture of either of these things happening. Paul does get bit by a snake at one point. You do, if you know that, he's on a shipwreck, he's on an island, he gets bit. And he doesn't die. Everybody thought he would, and he doesn't. So there's that. But he didn't specifically handle the snakes that just happened to bite him when he was getting some firewood. So uh, that is not necessarily a great example. But what does this even mean? Keep in mind that people that were going, there were new Christians, the new church was persecuted quite a bit. And a lot of times persecution would happen. And I read this in history that there's instances of this happening persecution when they were being like tortured to to give up christ and to, to denounce christ sometimes they would use snakes and sometimes they would use poison as a way of 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 causing people to walk away from christ and what we're told here is that these things could happen and it would not hurt them now we don't have any specific instances as i said in scripture of this happening but what we do know is that god is powerful enough to protect people even from things that seem like they shouldn't be protected from just like Paul, when he gets bitten, bit by the snake, he should have died and he didn't. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, if you know that story in the Old Testament. Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're there and they won't bow down to the idol that's in front of them. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. And they say, I'm not going to bow down, we're not going to do that. And Nebuchadnezzar brings him to the furnace, he brings it up seven times hotter than it's supposed to be. And he throws the three guys into the furnace. He looks in, he sees a fourth figure with him, and they come out, they're not even singed. 
God protected them from a furnace that would have burned, that even burned the men who threw them into the furnace. God can do those things and he can protect people, even if it's a snake, even if it's deadly poison. God is stronger. Jesus is stronger than poison or deadly snakes. Now, notice, as I said earlier, this is not a call for us to test God by bringing snakes into our ceremony or to drink poison. Just as much as it wouldn't have been okay for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be like, you know what, Uh, I just feel like today we want to throw ourselves in a furnace so that we can show that we won't be burned. That's not what happened. So let's keep that in mind as we look at this verse. I know it's somewhat confusing. We're not going to be handling snakes. But the thing is, God's protection is real. And even with these things, he can protect. All right, we got to move on. So we'll see that the disciples are to confirm the gospel. Book of Acts will tell us that. And then also this piece. With all of this here, what's seen is the truth of the fact that salvation will be proven in the lives of his people. The salvation is not something that happens and is not going to be seen. The book of James will tell you that. Actually, all of the Bible will tell you that if you believe in Jesus, your life will be different. And so what we're told here is that their belief in the gospel as they proclaim it will be proven. And God will do that. And God does do that in the lives of his believers. So moving on, so Jesus corrected his disciples. He instructs his disciples. And now finally, after his resurrection, we see the ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus. Jesus gives his final instructions. He's doing that. And then he leaves the earth. We see that here in the book of Mark. It says, Then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus gives his final instructions and he leaves the earth. We also are confirmed this story in Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. Those are both passages in which, once again, it talks about this very thing happening. So we know that it's true. Jesus leaves earth. They watch him leave. And they says not only does he leave earth, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus leaves earth to go up to heaven, not just to roam around up in the clouds, but he is sitting on the right hand of God. The right hand of God is shown a couple things. That means that Jesus has authority over the world. The right hand of God, the, the, right next to the throne, he is the one that has authority. Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, if you want to jot that down, we won't go there this morning. But Ephesians 1, 19 through 23 talks about Jesus being at the right hand of God. And Jesus is the authority. We then see that uh, not only authority, but Jesus, as sitting at the right hand of God, can give us intercession. We looked at that last week, Romans 8.34. He intercedes for us on our behalf. And in 8.1, Hebrews 8.1, he speaks of him being a priest that intercedes for us. That comes between God and us and says, God, I have paid for their sins. I am praying for them that they would be, that they would be saved. And I have done it for them. Don't punish them any longer. You've already punished me. And that's what Jesus does as he sits at the right hand of God. In the book of Acts, we see Stephen look up as he's being uh, martyred for his faith. And he sees Jesus sitting on the right hand of God. This is true and it shows that Jesus has authority and he intercedes for us. And finally, verse 20, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The disciples followed Jesus' instructions. But here's the point. With Jesus' presence. Or you could say with Jesus' power. We see here, what does it say? It says, Then they went out and preached everywhere. So they're following what God has told them to do. They're following what Jesus told them to do. And it says, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Once again, I already said this, God is the one doing the miraculous. 
It's not people that can muster up the strength to do miraculous things. God himself will do the miraculous thing. God himself will do it through his follower. But it is God who is working. And that is why it is so important that we understand going back to talking about all the things that will happen that are miraculous, that it's not on us, that we can't drum up enough faith in order to speak in tongues or to heal people. But God is in the business of healing. God is in the business of doing miraculous things so that people will come to know him. And so we trust him that he will work. Acts 1.8, many of you know this. In Acts 1.8, we're told that we will be given power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us and we will be witnesses. Uh, And so the understanding there is that God gives the power. The Holy Spirit comes. So Jesus sits at the right hand of God, but he's not absent. He sends his Holy Spirit to us. And so he lived, the Holy Spirit lives in us and through us. And that means that we have his presence always. We have his power always. Acts 1.8 tells us this, that we can do things. We can preach the gospel. We can be witnesses because of his power. Philippians 2.13, if you want to write that down, Philippians 2.13 says that what's happening in us is that we need to work hard at our, at our salvation, but know that he is the one at work within us, that God is the one that works in and through us. We don't do it in our own strength. So he ascends, he gives his final instructions, but then as the people go out, as we, you could read the whole book of Acts and see what happens. As the people go out to do what Jesus told them to do, they rely on the power of God. So that leads us then as we think about the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection. His farewell, if you will, of, from, from the world. We see his correction, his instruction, and his ascension. So what are the questions we need to ask as we look at those things? Well, first of all, as we talk about uh, the correction of Jesus, he was correcting their unbelief. My first question for all of you here today is this. Do you truly believe the gospel? Do you truly believe the gospel? We've talked about it. That Jesus lived a perfect life. As God, he, came, he became man. He was born as a baby uh, in Bethlehem. He grew up. He was perfect. And then he ministered. He showed himself to be the Messiah, the one who can save you from your sins. He died for your sin on a cross so that you don't have to face the judgment of God, but he faced it himself. And then he rose again to show that sin and death had no power over him and he can defeat it in your life. That you don't have to be ruled by sin and you don't have to fear death because he has eternal life for you. That is the gospel. He died, he rose again. He is there now at the right hand of God waiting for you to believe. To truly believe. Don't just sit here today and say, well, because I've been in church all my life, I believe it. The disciples were with Jesus for a long time and they still didn't quite get it. You may have been, you may be in church or listening to Jesus for a long time and you still don't get it. Do you truly believe with your whole heart? Do you believe in the, to the point where your life will be a life of repentance? That you will turn away from your way of life and turn towards Jesus? That is true belief. Do you truly believe? In the gospel. And if you do not, if you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, you do not have a relationship with Him, then today is the day to find out how you can know Him for sure. How you can come to Him and just say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, save me. I believe in you. Change my life. And if you're called to do that today, then do it. Don't wait any longer. Next question for all of us are we proclaiming the gospel? Are we living lives in which we keep it to ourselves? Watched a movie when I was a teenager, I loved it. It's called the Music Box. I may have talked about it before. 
This guy found a music box and it played beautiful music. And every time he opened it, it made his life wonderful. Everything, he was happy, he would dance around the streets. It was great. But anytime somebody else came by, he would close the box. He didn't want anybody to share. An angel comes to him later in the, in the movie and says, you weren't supposed to hoard the box, you're supposed to share it. And then he goes out and he starts sharing it with people and everybody's dancing on the streets. It's kind of weird. But the illustration is still the same. We have been given something that is so amazing, so wonderful. We've been giving new life and new hope. And it's our call to share that with the world around us. Not an option, but it's our call. Whatever situation you find yourself in, wherever you find yourself being, share the gospel of Jesus. And then finally, as we talked about his ascension, are we living in the authority and presence of Jesus? Or do we try to live life on our own? If you try to live in the strength of yourself, your life will be miserable. As the disciples go out and they do what they're called to do, they share the gospel, they are doing what God has called them to do. As this happens, they are doing it under the authority and the power and the presence of Jesus. If you are attempting to live this life, do ministry, do church, do life, whatever it is, and you're trying to do it in your own strength, you're missing the mark. You're missing it completely because you need to rely on Jesus. You need to rely on his power, his authority, his presence. Stop trying to live this life for yourself and let him in. No matter what you're doing, you need the power and the presence of Jesus in your life. And how do you get that? You ask for it. How do you get that? You pray and you remember him and you look to him whenever you have a decision to make and you don't look to yourself, but you look to Jesus. That's what we would do if we lived in the authority and presence of Jesus. So as we think about these things, Jesus is alive, what are we going to do with it? And that's the question that we all have to ask ourselves. All right, with that, if everybody would stand, we'll sing our final song together this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to read some scripture that's going to be a, 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 really a, a summary of what we've seen in Mark and a great way to, to finish today as we go out. But before I do that, Mike Stewart has an announcement that he needs to make about the vote from last week. So I'm going to have him come up, and then I'm going to read this passage. All right, with that, I want to close, and we've read this before. Uh, this is a great summary of Mark, and uh, really a great ending of today's message as well. In Philippians chapter 2, this is what we read. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality or did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he made himself nothing taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but so much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God bless.